Again, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, last week we began chapter 20 and got a little ways into it. Um, we avoided some of the, the controversial aspects simply so that we have uh, today to work through those. Maybe the best way for us to begin would be if you have a, a physical copy of the Lutheran Study Bible with you to turn to the introductory material on the book of Revelation page 2199, and if you, if you don't have a physical copy with you, there are, there are some copies of this chart that I've placed in the back, and I have some up here in front as well. So if you, if you need one, don't be shy about grabbing one of those. So what we'll do here is we'll just orient ourselves to, I think these are identical, we'll just orient ourselves to uh, revelate the, the true timeline and the false timeline. Here's, here's the commentary first from the study Bible. Though revelation can be difficult to understand because it uses so many symbols, it actually provides a very simple description of the end times, as early Christians found out. For example, after reading Revelation and the rest of Scripture, the early Christians summarized the end times as followed. As follows, Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Obviously, quotations from the Apostles' Creed. For centuries, this simple summary of the end times, rooted in Revelation, guided Christian teaching. Today, however, false teachers have created many confusing and complex interpretations of Revelation. And that's true. Here's my secret decoder sheet in case someone in here is super interested in all this. I can try to keep up. Believe it or not, even, even pastors and theologians find this, this aspect tedious and boring. Or at least I do. Um, <laughs> so I hold really strongly to something other than an all-millennial perspective. Um, I, I might be able to let you know why you're wrong, but that's about it. Other than that, I'm going to move on to Things I think are more interesting. The only question I have is... Oh, we have to get you a microphone. Hold on. This is for the privilege of the World Wide Web. Yeah. Oh, unless it's something simple. Do you need yeah, to go to the bathroom or... No. Uh-huh. Yeah. It makes better stories and movies. Oh, true. Great point. All right. Great point. That, that was worth it. Thanks. And I can, co I can comment on that. So, yeah, the false timeline makes for better movies. Sells more books. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, where we left off, uh, today, however, false teachers have created many confusing and complex interpretations of Revelation. They have added false doctrines like the rapture, you've probably heard of that, and the millennium to Revelation's summary of the end times. As a result, many Christians are confused about what will happen in the future. 
for a simple, clear understanding of how revelation differs from modern false opinions, study the timelines below. Be sure to look up the Bible references and see how revelation agrees with the rest of God's Word. So, I, I, I think that that last line is well said. The proof is in the references, the actual texts themselves, that drive and form this timeline. I like, I like how they have done a true timeline and a false timeline, because the false timeline really then is divided into many different camps and categories. As I, I showed you my cheat sheet up here, but post-tribulational premillennialism, could anything that sounds that complex be right? <laughs> Pre-tribulational or dispensational premillennialism, postmillennialism, all of these are the major, the three major categories of the false timeline. So, so as to say, amongst the false, false timeline, there is great disagreement. Nobody can figure out what they're talking about. If we look at the false timeline, you'll see that it begins on the left-hand side with Christ's visible earthly life. And then you see the church age. So, I mean, what you have there is the death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, all, all assumed. You have the beginning of the church age. Then your first vertical marker says Christ returns secretly to resurrect or rapture all true Christians. Now, the primary text for the, the rapture, where that word is actually used, is in 1 Thessalonians, and in that same immediate context, it's talking about the shout of the archangel and the blast of heaven's trumpets. What, what did we just say? Christ returns how, according to the false timeline? Secretly. For the purpose of a rapture. Yeah, well, I mean, that was easy. <laughs> okay. Uh, he, this one's, this is, <laughs> as was noted, this false timeline's better for movies and books. But it's also, it's also better because it, it's, got some, it's got some false comfort built into it, some nice things if they were true. For example, you can see that after Christ returns secretly to suck all the Christians out of their clothing up into the sky, then comes the seven-year tribulation. I mean, I, I, on its surface, that's nice. I would like to miss that. Um, but, there's, but again, it, it's without a text. Then you have the visible return of Christ as... A, or excuse me, you have the Battle of Armageddon next. And again, that's usually seen in terms of some sort of conventional warfare. Jesus with a machine gun, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> Visible return of Christ to bind Satan and begin the millennium. How many returns of Christ have we had so far? So much for thou shalt come again and again and again. <laughs> I mean, we've got two returns of Christ. No longer can we talk about the second coming. We have to talk about the second and third coming. Or the parousia, we have to talk about the second, par the, yeah, 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 yeah. The parousia and the second parousia. All right, well, hopefully you can see the issues already. All right, so, I mean, this is irksome. It's an oversimplification, but it's irksome. You have the Battle of Armageddon where the, where the powers of darkness are supposedly defeated. Christ sets up his kingdom over literally where Israel is, the assumption goes. Most of this, by the way, has its origin in um, the, the 19th century. So it doesn't exactly have a large pedigree. 
it's it's true enough that when you get to the millennial the millennium boy it would be nice if i could talk and say the say the word of the day <laughs> the millennium when it's true enough when you consider the millennium and whether they whether we ought to interpret that as a uh, literal you know thousand years or not you find some difference amongst the earliest church fathers in regard to that that's true but as Christianity marches on, it really gets codified into an amillennial perspective, which we'll describe in a minute. And then really only reemerges as anything other than that um, in terms of uh, the 19th century, tied in closely with uh, dispensationalism of Darby, etc. All right, well, Christ, there's the Battle of Armageddon. Christ wins, wipes everyone out in his tank or his jet, and then... You have the thousand-year literal reign. Satan apparently pops up, but who does he, I mean, who does he deceive and who's around? I guess there's unbelievers still all around. The, the, more you, the more you actually think about how this would work concretely, the less convincing it is. Because you've got Jesus enthroned apparently in Jerusalem for a literal thousand years while nations around him are rising and falling and conducting business. And I don't know. It makes really no sense. Yeah, really no sense. Satan is released, and then you have the resurrection of the wicked for the final judgment. And then you have the new heavens and the new earth. Well, at least we're agreed upon the new heavens and the new earth. All right, that's the false timeline. So overly complex. And again, um, even this chart sort of in the false timeline, it gives you like the broad street markers. It doesn't give you the technical quibbles between those who hold this view. Premillennialism is still around. That's basically what we're looking at, the visible return to Christ before the thousand years. But there's also postmillennialism, that somehow the world just sort of evolves into this thousand years of glory and then Christ returns after that, which sort of fell apart in the 20th century when we tried that and had all the world wars to end it. <laughs> kind of the opposite of what we set out to do. Let's build a utopia. Next thing we know. World War I and II. Okay, well. Um, let's go down to the true timeline. Now, this is, this is amillennialism. And again, I think the best case for, for amillennialism, particularly if, if we're limiting ourselves to interpretation of Revelation chapter 20, it's just really to read Revelation and just read it over and over and over again. See that it's a symbolic book. See that it uses numbers symbolically. R reckon with the, problem, the problems that arise if you read them too literally. And then, and then ask yourself, why on earth would we read a thousand years here in this tight, narrow, literal way when we don't do that with any of the other numbers? Or when doing so with the other numbers causes such great havoc. So what you see here is... Um, obviously, there is the, the Christ event, okay? And Christ um, bound Satan by his death and resurrection. Jesus has bound Satan. And you've got a number of references there you can, you can look up to this in this regard. Then Christ, um, his 1,000-year reign begins. With the binding of Satan, Christ began his symbolic 1,000-year reign through his church. Indeed, we are reigning with him right now. It is a reign akin to that reign of his on the cross. 
where he's crowned in thorns and persecuted by the world. Isn't that the description of the church? And yet reigning as king with, with the name king atta attached over his head. That's our reign with him too, but when he returns in glory, we reign with him in glory as well. You have a thousand, how do you get to a thousand? Ten times ten times ten, sort of a triune fullness, a threefold fullness. And you can look up, you can look up then Christ beginning his thousand-year reign with these other uh, I mean, there, there one sticks out, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me later when I come back to reign as a millennial king. No, he doesn't say any of that. <laughs> all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me full stop after his resurrection. What else, what else, should we, what else would Jesus say in regard to this? My kingdom is not of this world except for when it is, for that thousand-year reign. <laughs> Hashtag things Jesus never said, right? All right, so you have the symbolic thousand-year reign of Christ began at his resurrection, ascension continues, Why, um, and ascension and continues until Satan is released at the very end, and we're going to see this. And again, I think I commented last week that you know, the world is so filled with darkness and everything else that who knows if we'll even... Who knows if we'll even know? Plus, Christians have never survived. I mean, in all, this, in all the apostolic scriptures, in the church fathers, in the whole history of the Christian church, nowhere has it been universally held that the next thing we're waiting for is the appearance of Satan. The next thing we're waiting for is the appearance of Jesus. Right. So even though Satan's released, it's not like it's this event that everyone's going to suddenly know. Oh, that was it. How was your last Monday? Real bad. Real bad. <laughs> Satan was released, <laughs> ran out of coffee. <laughs> All right, well, I'm having too much fun, as you can tell. So, so how is uh, Satan released? And then you have Armageddon and Tribulation. And again, we've even talked about how the Armageddon and Tribulation, while you can see these in a, in a sort of narrow or proper sense, right up against the final return of Christ, there is very much a, a sense in Revelation which you can see both of these con uh, concepts in a wide sense. The ongoing spiritual warfare and battle, put on the full armor of God. Uh, and the ongoing tribulation. These are they who are coming out of the great tribulation. So we can work with a narrow definition and with a wider definition here. <clears throat> you will notice uh, point three on the true timeline is the resurrection of all flesh coinciding with Judgment Day, exactly as, exactly as 1 Thessalonians teaches. Why is it that Christians are caught up in the air in, in the imagery and way of speaking that Paul is using? It's so that what befalls the earth does not befall us. It's the judgment of all flesh, and it's, it's about to get real bad on earth as Christ cleanses it. And we're not there for that cleansing. We're, we're up with him in the, in the sky um, and with him then enduringly. As he, and, and I mean, in the, in the immediate sense, it's as he's preparing the new heavens and the new earth for us to be there with him. Contrary to the false timeline where you've got multiple resurrections, you can see that indicated on the last vertical point of the false timeline, you have the resurrection of the wicked for final judgment. 
You've also got multiple theories about how and when the saints are supposedly resurrected, because it's not at the same time as the wicked. I mean, again, find a chapter and verse for that one. Good luck. But in the, uh, in the true timeline, resurrection of all flesh is universal, perfectly accords with what Paul says in many places. Those who are, who are dead will rise, and we who are around when Christ returns will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So Jesus will return visibly. How many, how many returns in the true timeline? One. Just one return. We believe that he will come again to be our judge. Jesus will return visibly, defeat Satan. Defeat Satan in the sense like kick Satan out of this realm, just as he was kicked out of the heavenly realm by Michael. Jesus is, is man and has won this realm. He'll kick Satan out. Defeat Satan in the final sense. I mean, in a very real sense, Satan is already a serpent with his head crushed in, thrashing around. Now it's just time to throw the serpent out. He'll raise the dead. He'll judge all people. I mean, this sounds just like the creed, doesn't it? Sending the wicked to hell and the righteous to heaven. Matthew 25 is listed. That's a great text. If you want to get, if you want to get corroboration outside of Revelation. <clears throat> That's the judgment of the sheep and the goats, if, if memory serves. And then, uh, so, so, this, so you have Christ returning. You have, you have resurrection and judgment day. Just boom. Then you have the fifth point, new heaven and new earth created. The new heaven and the new earth will be created out of the ashes of the first, and God will dwell with his people. We're going to see this as the climax of Revelation as we come up into chapter 21 and 22. But you can see this many other places, Isaiah 65, and uh, other references as well. Okay, so does everyone feel confident, if nothing else, in the true timeline and why we... So millennium means a thousand, obviously. Amillennial is, we're just saying, not a literal a thousand. Um, millennialism holds to a literal 1,000. Then you've got the pre and post uh, versions of that. Okay? So with that in mind, um, let's just open back to chapter... Chapter 20 of Revelation. Pastor, one quick thought. Sure. As we wrestle through some of our, uh, our, our understanding of Scripture and our, and our, our theology, um, comparing contrast is helpful for us. Yeah. You know, especially as we're looking at other, uh, other, pers other perspectives or positions. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to be probably sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're going to have a premillennialist that gets set down right next to us, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. So, so what does all this quibbling about, like, the end times really amount to? I mean, not much. We'll all find out soon enough <laughs> who's right and who's wrong. And, and whether, you, whether you believe that it's right or believe that it's not right, I mean, what does that actually affect? It's coming anyway. And probably the biggest tragedy of the false timeline is that it just so happens that the false timeline is also taught in churches who will do like 52 weeks on millennialism, right? And, and you know, kind of accidentally forget to mention like repentance or the forgiveness of sins or Jesus for a, for a long time. So that's really, that's really, I think, the material problem. It's not, I mean, you know, 
whatever. There's lots of errors in theology, and truth be told, we're all going to realize things that you know we thought we knew, and now we know so much clearer. Or we thought we knew, but it, and it was right in so far as it goes. We we had all of this right, but this these aspects wrong. I mean, that's just the way it is to be a fallen human being in this world. So there's going to be an eye opening for all of us, no matter what. Uh, but yeah, I think the real issue with this is just it divides the church. It divides the church and it occupies the church's attention rather than the preaching of, of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, so thank you for that. All right, well, um, into, into chapter 20 we go again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Again, if you just take the symbolic elements out of this, the first century Christians, I mean, especially those who were formerly Jews are, are reckoning, as, as Paul himself is, in amazement that salvation is for the nations. And whereas before the nations in mass never received uh, the Hebrew faith, they are now. They are now. They're receiving the message that God came in the flesh of, of Christ Jesus, that Christ died for their sins and rose for their forgiveness. This is spreading throughout the world. How do you explain that? And one way to explain that in, in symbolic terms is to say, well, Satan is bound and he can no longer deceive the nations. Yeah. I mean, that's really all that that's, all that that's explaining. Brighton, Brighton has this to say. The angel has the key of the abyss and a heavy chain in his hand. In chapter 9, 1, because you remember this imagery from before, the key of the shaft of the abyss was given to the star which had fallen out of heaven. The star is to be identified as the angel of the abyss in chapter 9, verse 11. That is Satan, the king of the demons. He opened the shaft of the abyss from which then came the demons who afflict the human race. You remember all this from chapter 9, no doubt. Now here in chapter 20, John sees an angel from heaven that is, from the presence of God, who has the keys of the abyss. Not just of the shaft of the abyss, but of the abyss itself. You have to forgive me, I'm not all that familiar with the architecture of abysses, but <laughs> apparently there's a distinction. This time the angel of the abyss, the dragon, will himself be put into the abyss. He is named Satan. Satan was given a key by which to open the shaft and unleash the demons on humanity. Now with another key, the key to the abyss itself, the abyss will be closed and secured after Satan has been cast into it. He can't open what is shut with the angel's key from heaven. Okay, so, so that's, um, that's how Brighton looks at this. Now as to the binding of Satan, just so you don't think that this is the wit and wisdom of Rhodey here, the angel took hold of the dragon, Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Chapter 20, verse 2. Is it possible to determine when this binding of Satan took place? Nowhere else in Revelation is there a reference to a binding or imprisonment of Satan. 
However, in the Synoptic Gospels, there is a reference to Satan being bound. Jesus was casting out demons, and he was accused of doing so by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. In Jesus' response, he equates Beelzebub with Satan. Jesus countered the accusation by saying that if he were casting out demons by the authority of Satan, then Satan is divided against himself and as a result will meet his end, like a kingdom divided against itself. Then Jesus explained why he was casting out demons. In a parabolic saying, Jesus spoke about someone entering the house of a strong man to rob him of his goods. But before robbing the strong man, he must first bind the strong man. The strong man is the devil, and the one who had come to rob him, I love that, by first binding him is Jesus Christ, the real thief on the cross. You thought it was the two next to him. Now, he snuck into the world, he binds the strong man, and he's plundering his house. And that really is, is descriptive of the thousand-year reign of Christ, just in, albeit, very different imagery. Uh, Satan has been put away, and Christ is throwing into the sack, his sack of the Holy Christian Church, as many as, as he can grab hold of and get in there. And that's, that's precisely where we're at. So, uh, maybe just, just a touch more, if you'll humor me, from Brighton. By this parabolic saying, Jesus answered his critics by asserting that in his ministry of exercising demons, he was setting people free from the demonization and slavery of Satan. By such exercising of demons, he was displaying the power and authority by which, by which he was binding Satan. Jesus was clearly demonstrating that the kingdom of God had come, because he was doing this by the power and authority of the Spirit of God. This reference to the binding of Satan in the Synoptic Gospels is the only other place in the New Testament which speaks of such a binding of the devil, other than Revelation 22. The Gospel of John does not refer to the binding of Satan, but describes Satan as being judged and cast out when Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. According to the four Gospels, then, the devil was bound, conquered, judged, and cast out as a result of Jesus' saving ministry, culminating in his death on the cross and his resurrection. Therefore, the binding of Satan, the dragon, took place at Jesus' victory, accomplished by his ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension at the beginning of the thousand years. Okay. So now, now we see then chronologically where we might place this or where we ought to place this on the basis of the testimony of the Gospels. So he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, verse 3 in the middle. After that, he must be released for a little while. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones and seated on them, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. 
Okay? What on earth does this mean? This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so we've got multiple resurrections in here, and we talked about we talked about that last week. And how is it? Let me um, just turn here to to Brighton, so you can hear from him next. Yeah. So we talked about this last week, and the various ways in which we might conceptualize this or think about this. Okay, what we want to see is, is the throne, um, the thrones are seated, okay, judgment is, is uh, committed to those who are seated upon the thrones, the souls of those who had been beheaded, remember back from, you know, Revelation 6, the martyrs, um, and for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast and its image, this is Christians, Okay, so, so that's what we have here. We have, we have those seated on the throne and then also these souls, martyrs and Christians. Okay, they came to life. The martyrs and Christians came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, in what sense did they come to life? That's really the interpretive rub. Okay, and if you look at verse, uh, if you look at the study note on five, on verse five, you'll see that the Lutheran Study Bible says in regard to the first resurrection, it refers to regeneration, the divine work by which sinners are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life by means of grace. This is received through faith in this life and then consumed, uh, consummated in paradise. As such, it is to be distinguished from the bodily resurrection that occurs at Christ's second coming. See, a note, see the note on John 5.24. So, if we turn to John 5.24, again, same author. And here quoting Jesus... And for the sake of it, we'll simply pick up at verse 19 of John chapter 5. So Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Amen, amen, I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Okay, so here you have Jesus himself, that faith is a passing from death to life. Even though he doesn't use the word explicitly, passing from death to life is resurrection. What other verses might we muster in regard to this concept of a spiritual resurrection? Well, let's flip to Ephesians chapter 2 and take a look at how Paul puts it. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, well, in the first place for our purposes, what is Paul saying? We were dead in our trespasses and God did what? Made us alive. So we're no longer dead, we're alive. We go from children of wrath to being children of God. And likewise... In a way that we can't quite comprehend, or at least see with our eyes, we can believe it with faith. Uh, we're also told that God has raised us up with Christ, not only in terms of a resurrection, but also in terms of a, an ascension. Just as He is risen, we are risen spiritually. Just as He is ascended into heaven, we are ascended spiritually. The point being that we be seated with him in the heavenly places. We be seated um, with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. I mean, what does that mean but to reign with Christ? Okay, where else might we go if we were to look at a spiritual resurrection? Um, we might also go to Romans 6, and we can go there quickly. And in Romans 6, beginning at chapter 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So there's a death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, when is the walking in newness of life? It's right now as Christians. So just as he was died, we have died with him. Just as he is risen, we are spiritually raised with him that we might walk in newness of life. And then, and then pointing to the final resurrection of our flesh. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So dead and raised. So it is the reality of faith. It is the reality of baptism. Scripture never pits faith and baptism against each other. They're always one and the same. If you believe, you'll be baptized. If you're baptized, why wouldn't you believe? And so uh, we see yet another example here. So I think, I think once more, as, as we return to Revelation, we consider you know, the strangeness of this language. If we look at it in a larger biblical context, it's not all that strange. If we were to look for this teaching of a spiritual resurrection in the Old Testament, there are a number of places we can turn to. But maybe the most memorable is in Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 38, but one of you can correct me if, I'm, if I have that wrong. But you remember the Valley of Dry Bones? Yeah, how can you forget? It's so poignant, and it's so physical. It's so physical. The dry bones stand up. At the, at, God tells, the, tells Ezekiel, the son of man, to prophesy, to preach. And the dry bones stand up, you remember, and preach again, and flesh covers them, and preach again, and... Um, breath enters them. So it's, it's through the preaching that Israel is going to be raised from the dead. That's, that's really the import of that. Now, is that to say that that text has nothing to do with a literal physical resurrection from the dead? Of course not. I mean, it does. Look at the imagery. But its, it's main emphasis in context is the spiritual resurrection of Israel, that of which we've heard Jesus speak and Paul speak. So far, so good. So then let's, let's head back to Revelation 20. Again, toward the latter half of verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now the come to life shifts So the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And so let me just take you to Brighton and show you how he works this. The picture in Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 of those sitting upon the thrones and judging might not be limited to just a select few, It could also include all of God's saints who live, serve, and reign with Christ during the millennium. 
In chapter 321, the one who conquers, that is, all the saints, will sit with Christ on his throne. And he goes on to just make this argument. In 1 Corinthians 6.2, Paul makes the statement that the saints will judge the world. In Romans 5.17, Paul says that all those having received the free gift of righteousness in life will rule through the one Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.17, there is a sense in which God's saints begin to rule with Christ while still on earth. And the saints before God's heavenly throne also rule. Such reigning with Christ is not limited only to a select few, but is God's gift to all in Christ. So the way in which the church exercises judgment may be seen, for example, in Matthew 16 and John 20, where Jesus authorizes the church to open and shut heaven by the forgiving of, of the sins of the penitent and retaining the sins of the impenitent. These pronouncements by the church of forgiveness or condemnation are judgments proclaimed in the stead of Christ and on behalf of God. Second, John saw those who participated in the first resurrection as, quote, the souls of the ones who had been beheaded on account of the witness of Jesus and on account of the word of God, end quote. Does this refer only to those who were actually beheaded? Does it not have a wider reference to all those Christians who were martyred, put to death in any way because of their Christian faith, as was Antipas, for example, in the church of Pergamum? Or does it refer to all Christians, since all in Christ may, in one way or another, suffer for their Christian witness? If all Christians are in view here, then those martyrs who were beheaded serve as an outstanding example of a suffering that may come to all, in the same way that the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God underneath the altar in heaven represent all who have died in Christ. Yeah, so, so again, it's just Brighton's wrestling with how it is that we understand this, you know, these things in a narrow and in a broad sense. Then he goes on to say, um, apropos of the, the first and second resurrection itself, in the first literary unit, the first resurrection is mentioned, but not a second resurrection. Though those who come to life after the millennium, chapter 20, verse 5, are part of the second resurrection. In the following unit, 20, 11 through 15, the second resurrection is described in fuller detail. It is the physical resurrection of all bodies at the end. This can be referred to as the second resurrection, in contrast to the one in chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. For it is the other resurrection that follows the first resurrection. Since the two resurrections are in two different literary units and not in the same context, except for a brief reference to the second resurrection in 25a, they probably refer to two different kinds of resurrections. The first is the present spiritual resurrection of all believers, and the second is the future physical resurrection of all the dead on the last day. 
Okay, so there's, there's Brighton clarifying for us then uh, how we ought to read of these two resurrections. So they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection. Then as we read, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Um, that, is, that is the ending of a literary unit. Okay, so we're talking about the resurrection, uh, the spiritual resurrection to Christ, followed by the literal physical resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Again, summarizing what has come before. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now, the first death then is unbelief or falling away, which leads to bodily death. And the second death, as we're going to see, is the lake of fire or eternal death. So there's different ways that we can play with these themes. And at the close of our last uh, class period, we are doing that very thing because there's a sense in which you can talk about a a death and resurrection. Um, And in a sense, your first and only death already happened in baptism. You can find biblical verses that support that. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die, Jesus says, right? So following this motif and this picture and this language, you can think of it this way. So you can just think of it in all these different dynamic ways. It's a lot of fun to do. But you can think of of, uh, your baptism as both a death and a resurrection. Then you can think of death as death or not. And you can think of resurrection as either already happening in baptism or happening in a in a fulfillment sort of sense, or happening in an independent sort of sense. So you've got a lot of room to play around here with with different uh, deaths and different resurrections. And I think that that's kind of the joy of preaching, is to stick with one motif that makes sense and um, follow it through. Now, here in Revelation, though, there is reason to think that we should tighten this down, because Revelation explicitly says that the second death is the lake of fire, or eternal death. So those who have had the first resurrection, um, the second death has no power. That is to say, those who have been converted to Christ, hell has no power over them. Make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think it's perfectly clear. So that's where we're at then with this first resurrection um, over which the, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. So again, what is, what is being pictured here, albeit the language is somewhat complex and we're not accustomed to it, and it does require some flexibility of thought in regard to resurrection, what's really being depicted here is the church. The church thriving as Satan is bound and reigning with Christ, being resurrected and awaiting the coming judgment, unafraid of the second death. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, where does this come from? Well, if you look down at the study note, it says that these are symbols for the enemies of God's people with reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Okay. So, again, 
in the same way we've seen Babylon be used and Egypt be used as uh, types. Yeah, I think maybe that's the right word. Types of the powers of evil. Here, Gog and Magog are being used as types of the powers of evil. So the dragon, uh, Satan, is released from his prison after the thousand-year reign of Christ, which we might also call the church age, the age in which we're in. And he comes out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, which again, if we're thinking, if we're thinking with our biblical ears on, we're thinking these are the enemies of God's people, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, didn't we already have a battle where, you know, Christ came and, yeah. And so, so what is being depicted here is, is precisely the same event from different angles. And the warfare motif that is with us even now by way of put on the full armor of God, fight the good fight, is concluded using these different images, these different angles on what actually is the victory of Christ over Satan and over the two beasts. So Satan finally meets his end. He goes to the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet already are. I think that's chapter 19 where, yeah, it is chapter 19 where we saw that. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, now in this section, um, there is a shift, and we're talking about um, the second resurrection, as it was mentioned before, which is the resurrection of all flesh. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Remember, remember what we read um, in, in the Gospel of John, how it's not the Father who judges, but who? The Son. The Son. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Hey, this is great law and gospel imagery. The books that are open, as the study note points out, are the records of human conduct. Or at least that's, that seems to be what's, what's being stated here. But then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Of course, we've run into the book of life before, and we know that our names are written on the book of life by the grace of God, by the, the ink of holy baptism. And that's all, ultimately all that matters. And the dead were raised by what, uh, excuse me, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Here you can see Hades used not so much as hell proper, but um, as the realm of the dead. 
uh, the, the place in which um, men go when they die, and probably with a, with a shade here of, of these being the unbelievers, the death and Hades, yeah, definitely, were thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, the, oh yeah, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's such great imagery. Because death and Hades are personified here, and, and they follow, so that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Yeah. Yeah, this is the second death, the lake of fire. So there's where we get our definition for the second death that, you know, was a bit more ambiguous back in verse 6. Um, but here's where Revelation gives it, gives, us to it, uh, gives it to us. Excuse me. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so that's the judgment. So what do we have? We have, in a nutshell, it's really not all that complex. I mean, I know that the language can kind of bog us down and we can get tied up in trying to figure out what's what and make sure we have everything right. But like so much of, of Revelation, if you just zoom back out then, you know, after kind of doing the tedious work, you just zoom back out and you say, what was this about? And it's really pretty simple. Christ came, Satan was bound, the nations received the gospel, Satan was released. They deceived the nations. Intense final spiritual warfare ensued. Christ wins. The devil is finally thrown out. All the saints are rejoicing. We're gathered before the judgment seat of God. And uh, the books of all our deeds uh, are brought out. And yet our names are written in the only book that matters, which is the book of life, the book of the Lamb. And we're saved. Those who have allied and united themselves with the dragon, with the beast and the false prophet, meet the same fate as them, and it's the close of the age. And with that, with that too, um, you'll, you'll note just by the headings alone, chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth, followed by the new Jerusalem, followed by the river of life. Um, in terms of the visionary experience of Revelation, this marks evil being finally and forever put away. And so, so now we just move on to the good stuff. God be praised. All right, that's it for this week. The Lord be with you.